Hey, if uh, you have your Bibles there uh, with you, would you turn or maybe even uh, tap your way to 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 14 is where we're going to be at today. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, we, like we just alluded to, uh, have been in a series in Paul's letter to Timothy, actually his second letter that we have written to, uh, young Pastor Timothy. Timothy, uh, being the recipient of the letter, is a young pastor in ministry getting started in the big bad city of Ephesus. Paul has been a mentor figure for him for his whole ministry. And so now here you have Paul writing from prison, moving towards his own death, and he's writing to Timothy to encourage him in the faith, to encourage him in his work as a pastor. And the main framework, the main theme following throughout the letter is this idea of endurance, of perseverance, of faithfulness over the long haul, what Eugene Peterson called a long obedience in the same direction. And so over the letter, we're today kind of, as we come into chapter 2, verse 14, at a turning point in the flow of thought in the letter. So if you actually see behind me, uh, nope, slides are gone. Cool. So that's okay. So now in your head, we had our, our slides broke last week. We got them back, and now we don't have them anymore. So just, you'll, if you have your Bibles open, you can look with me. From the beginning of the letter, uh, verse 1 of chapter 1, all the way to where we ended last week, chapter 2, verse 13, the main theme that Paul kind of keeps doing throughout that is just this big call to endurance. He's just calling Timothy to endure, to persevere, to continue in the faith. He gives this language of enduring, of, of dying to himself in this consistent obedience and following Jesus. He uses the imagery of an athlete and a soldier and a farmer. Paul's picking up all of this stuff, calling Timothy to endurance. As we click into chapter 2, verse 14, and then all the way into chapter 3, verse 9, I believe, yes, what Paul is going to move into in the middle section of the letter, where we'll be today and next Sunday, is Paul detailing some obstacles to endurance. So the first chunk of the letter is just this big call to endurance. Then the middle of the letter is Paul saying, here's the obstacles to that endurance. And then 310 through the end of the letter, <clears throat> excuse me, is Paul then going, okay, here's the way of endurance. He gets like really practical, right? So it's kind of this big call, hey, come follow me in the way of this long obedience in the same direction. And then he moves into where we'll be for the next two weeks going, hey, keep an eye out for this. Don't, you know, avoid these things, look for these things. And then he's gonna help give really practical steps in the following chunks of it. And so these next two weeks are a lot like the Apostle Paul. I've been picturing him this week with a unicorn helmet on a little purple scooter. And the reason being is when we go on family walks, that's exactly what my daughter, my five-year-old Emma wears. And, and she always goes a couple houses, a couple yards, you know, in front of us, scooting along. And as we do, she calls out, like, things to look for as we're pushing, you know, our two-year-old in the scooter, like, in his little, you know, car thing. And so we'll be riding, and, you know, if there's, like, you know, most of the sidewalks in Los Angeles, like, bumped up and overturned and roots growing up underneath it, she'll just, like, scream, bump, and then, like, kind of keep going. It's like, okay, there's a bump coming. Or, you know, there, there's litter and just trash, and, you know, she'll keep going. She's just looking for things. Or, like, Tuesday, we're walking, we're going to... Um, uh, maybe it was Wednesday. We went to play pickleball for the first time, and I'm, ad I'm addicted now. Um, there's one, like, at the park right by our house. So on the way there, Emma's, you know, on her scooter, dead mouse! And, like, just points, like, at the scooter, like, all right, there's a dead mouse. And then my favorite, which happens pretty regularly in the neighborhood that we live in, is her just screaming poop, like, as we go down the sidewalk. Just poop! And you're like, all right, th thanks, Emma. So for those of us, like, seeking to answer... That Paul's call to an enduring faith. We want to have a lasting faith. We don't want to fizzle out. 
We are in love with the person of Jesus, and we want to remain faithful to him. These next couple of weeks are Paul on the scooter with the helmet, and he's calling out saying, hey, avoid these things. Look for these things. Keep your eye out for this. Don't step in that. And so that's what Paul is kind of doing. So here we go. With that being said, 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. You've got the helmet on. He's riding on the scooter. What does he say to us? He says in verse 14, Remind them of these things and charge them, that being the church in Ephesus, before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene, cancer. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, there's not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So then, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with these foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently, enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I realized two verses in, I forgot to have everyone stand for the reading of God's word. So why don't we stand really quick for a prayer after the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. The reason why that's important in the rhythm of our church is as we read the scriptures, we stand to just identify and, and to say with our bodies that what we're reading here is not simply for brains on a stick, for us just to chew on like you know, any other article that we read, but this is the word of God speaking into the depths of our whole selves. And so now we pray as our whole selves receiving this word. So let's pray. Father, thank you for 2 Timothy. Thank you for Paul's example of endurance in his own life and God, his uh, calling out of the obstacles that can so easily entangle God and keep us from the life that we truly desire. And we want to be a community where the real Jesus is on display, God, not just in our teaching and our words, but in our lives and our character. And so we pray that today you would chip away, God, all that keeps us from imaging Jesus more. Be with us, we pray. Amen. We'll go ahead and be seated. So our little apostle Paul riding on his purple scooter and unicorn helmet, as we've just made our way through the passage, what we found him repeatedly calling out and pointing out on the sidewalk in the way of faith is this repeated language you might have caught. Quarrels about words there at the beginning. Irreverent babble, he continues. Then towards the end, ignorant and foolish controversies. All of these, this kind of peculiar kind of talk. This section, whatever Paul's getting at here with these controversies, babble that's irreverent and quarrels, ignorant, foolish controversies, whatever this is, 
This for Paul, three times he repeats and restates himself, this is one of the great obstacles to an enduring faith. And so what is this talk that seems to be so detrimental to the enduring faith, both of Timothy and of the church of Ephesus? What does he say? Well, before we talk about what is being said, let's focus on the two characters of who are the ones talking. Those two wonderful names that I'm sure those of you wrote down for later to name your kids. In the end of verse 17, Hymenaeus and Philetus. Hymenaeus and Philetus, who then he immediately describes as being individuals who swerved from the truth. Philetus' name is never mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. This is the one place he shows up. Imagine that. You get like, hey, guess what? Your name's in the Bible. Like the Apostle Paul wrote about you. Oh, cool. And it's because of like you swerve from the truth. You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> Hymenaeus, on the other hand, he actually shows up in the first letter Paul wrote to Timothy where he apparently is doing a lot of the same stuff that he's doing in the second letter. But Paul there identifies Hymenaeus and a guy named Alexander with him as those who have shipwrecked their faith. And so these, you know, shipwrecked faith individuals are bringing into the church this sort of language and talk, these sorts of debates and dialogues and controversies that Paul stops at no list of adjectives to describe. In verse 14, he says it ruins the hearers. In verse 16, he says it leads to ungodliness, or literally the word is, is, the, uh, is, is not worship, the absence of worship. It takes away from a worshipful life, and it leads people away from God. In verse 18, he says it upsets people's faith. It's destructive to people's faith. It breeds quarrels in verse 23. And in verse 17, some of the most you know, poetic imagery of what this is, he refers to as a gangrene, this disease that spreads throughout the body, eating healthy cells. It's cancerous. It's like a tumor inside the church. So these two individuals, whoever they are, are bringing by apparently something quite dangerous into the church. Something that Paul says, have nothing to do with it. Avoid it. You, this, this is cancerous to the church. But what are they saying? In verse 18, what does he say? That they're saying the resurrection has already happened. Is that cancerous? <laughs> like, this is the big thing that Paul's like, obstacle, obstacle, obstacle. They're saying the resurrection has already happened. So, so what in the world is going on here? Well, what we know is that they're saying the resurrection has already happened. This is not in reference to Jesus' resurrection that had already happened. What they're appealing to is central to the Christian faith, is the belief that for those who are in Jesus, that as he was raised from the dead, Easter Sunday, that so too those who are in him will too one day be resurrected bodily to a new, eternal, everlasting bodily existence on a new, recreated, renewed earth. Central to the Christian faith is the bodily resurrection of the people of the people of Jesus, the people of God. And so what's going on by their saying it's already happened? Like you'd be able, you feel like that would kind of just fall apart. Like if somebody got up right now and was like, the resurrection already happened, we'd like look around and go, no, dude. <laughs> like like I, I have family members that like have died. Like so-and-so's not here because they're sick this week. Like the world is still, the resurrection has not happened. So what are they arguing? Hymenaeus and Philetus and the group that they represent by arguing that the resurrection has already happened is not that the bodily resurrection at the end of time of God's people has already happened, but rather an argument over words about what resurrection actually means. So Paul and the church, they're talking about resurrection. They're going, oh, you guys think it's about this bodily resurrection thing. No, no, no. What it's about is this spiritual awakening, this inner knowledge of the self, an awakening to the divine. And that this then is what Jesus has come to bring. Jesus has, has come to bring this kind of inner awakening. And so therefore, what you do in this life, what you do with your body actually has little to no consequence. 
What's going on is just this inner spiritual awakening. Now, where is this coming from? Is a, a Greek uh, Platonic thought. Platon is like, this is, you guys are like, what in the world are we going through? Stick with me. It's going to come together. Or maybe this, this is fascinating to some of you guys. You guys are called my friends. Um, <laughs> so what's going on here is you have Hymenaeus and Philetus have been raised in and around Greek, Roman culture, and specifically Platonic thought. Platonic thought separated the material, the body, from the spiritual and the immaterial, the, the inner world. It's specifically the spiritual and the inner being better, more important than the outside body stuff. And what's happening here with Hymenaeus and Philetus would go on to become what's known as a heresy in the early church, Gnosticism, a particular form of not Christianity, one that separated our embodied lives as image bearers from this kind of inner spiritual awakening kind of a thing. And so what they're bringing here then is this argument that what Jesus has come to bring is not actually a renewed resurrection, a renewed world, renewed bodies, and that what you do with your bodies now matters and plays into that. But rather, it's really just about this kind of awakening of yourself to like the divine spark within you is kind of the way that Platonic thought went. And so what you do in this life, what you do with your body is actually of little consequence. The main thing is the gnosis, the knowledge that you have within you, that inner awakening. And so you can imagine kind of maybe pretty quickly the sort of quarrels that then this would lead to in like Bible studies is they're reading and they're talking about the resurrection and then immediately goes, oh, by resurrection, this is what Jesus actually meant. And then it turns into this whole big dialogue and debate. You can imagine what Paul's getting at when he talks about the ungodliness that this is bringing into the community. People that are going, oh, our bodies don't matter. And so I can go, you know, to skip ahead to next week. I can do whatever I want with my body and I can do whatever I want with this life because it really doesn't matter because I've got the inner spark. It's upsetting the faith of new Christians, Paul says, and it's ruining people as they just spend time listening to it. Now, this is, not, this is why this feels so like, out of place within our the teaching is because this, this argument is not happening. Like I did not have to go to a discipleship group this week because somebody was like going on a rant about how the resurrection isn't actually the, res- isn't actually the resurrection. But underlying Hymenaeus and Philetus' teaching is a posture that does absolutely continue within the church today. The big word of the day is syncretism. Syncretism is a word, you know, invented, you know, back in the 16th century to kind of give language to when you blend two or more belief systems together. So for Hymenaeus and Philetus, they're taking the story of Jesus and the promise of the resurrection, and they're blending it with this kind of platonic thought. And in the process, they're creating something new. Now, that intuition is absolutely alive and well within our current culture within our church today, this, this posture of syncretism. Maybe for a better language than syncretism is that of a Build-A-Jesus workshop, as I've used before. If you've ever been to a Build-A-Bear workshop, what do you do? You go in and you get this, like, terrifying, like, thing of just, like, empty teddy bear. And you, you go in and you get to fluff it. You stick the little heart inside of it, and they sew it up. And then you get to pick, like, the little outfit and make it look like whatever you want. Syncretism is where we take that kind of experience and we give it a religious posture, that is, we walk into, you know, our kind of like religious buffet of options, and we take this Jesus who's devoid and deflated of all of his power, and we fluff him up with our expressive individualism. We give him a little, like, heart that when you squeak him, it's like, you know, he, you know, this little voice of Jesus, like, whatever you think. You're like, oh, thanks, Jesus. 
And then we, you know, we stitch him up, and then we go, and then we start to begin to lay on the clothing and the outfits of whatever we think. And so we give Jesus a selection of outfits of the sexual ethic that we want, our consumerism, the American dream, our partisanship, our, our comforts, our desires, our nationalism. Like, we just kind of, we, we end up, and then we come out with a little box, and we're like, hey, this is, I found, this is Jesus. And, he, and the creepy thing is it becomes like this little American do, like dolls, real me version, where it's like this weird Jesus version of you that just walks around with, it's like a little mini-me, and you just have Jesus that follows you around and agrees with you. And oh, so if it's Hymenaeus and Philetus, they just made Jesus into the image of this little mini Plato. This little, not the, the modeling play, like Plato, the, the philosopher, who follows them around. And he's, oh, look, he agrees with all of the Greek thought of our city. So as we bump into people and we're talking about platonic thought, oh yeah, Jesus agrees with everything you guys do. We have this same posture where we end with this Jesus that looks like us. It's kind of the... If you ever saw the movie back in 2004, Stepford Wives, directed by Frank Oz, I found out this week, Yoda, that's crazy. So if you've ever seen the movie Stepford Wives, it's this kind of, you know, eerie kind of movie of all of these wives who are subservient, docile, and just agree with their husbands, whatever they want, however they, and over the course of the movie, it's kind of this like thriller, kind of dark comedy, where you begin to discover that all of these wives are actually cyborgs. They're not themselves. They've been programmed to basically be subservient to their husbands. And, and we, we have in this culture, what's going on with Hymenaeus and Philetus and within our church is this kind of Stepford Savior, this cyborg Jesus, who we've got programmed to just kind of speak whatever we want, agree with us, and just feed us whatever things that we agree with. In the process of so doing, we find what St. Augustine wrote back in the 300s. If you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't, it is not the Gospel that you believe in but yourself. And so what Paul is getting at here is this is what's going on. For all the talk about the resurrection already happened that seems so outlandish to us today, the main thing is they're recreating, reshaping, they are syncretizing, syncing up Jesus with Greek thought, and in the process, losing him. The early Christians had a word for this kind of syncretism before that word was made. In Greek, it was heresis. It's the word to choose for oneself. You might recognize the word in English as heresy. This is what this is. The, the, the language the Old Testament prophets used was idolatry. This is what Paul's getting at. He goes, this is the obstacle to an enduring community of faith, an enduring community in the way of Jesus, is this kind of syncretism, this swerving from the truth, this deviating and departing from Jesus as he's been presented to us through church tradition, but ultimately through the scriptures, and finding a Jesus who looks like me and agrees with me and never challenges anything I have to say. The first obstacle Paul notes to endurance is the obstacle to orthodoxy, to an enduring true faith as we let Jesus go and we find somebody who looks like us. Now, what is this all rooted in? In verse 15 of chapter 2, Paul kind of begins to take a break from talking about Hymenaeus and Philetus, and he starts talking about what Timothy is meant to do. And, and actually, if you reverse what Paul calls Timothy to do, I think you actually get a very good basis for exactly what's motivating Hymenaeus and Philetus. So Paul says to Timothy, do your best to present yourself uh, for approval to God, as a worker approved by God. And so Paul says, hey, your main thing is for you to work to present yourself to approval to God. I think in Hymenaeus and Philetus, what you find is them working to present a God who is approvable to themselves and to others. Finding a God that I like rather than finding myself being shaped into his image. I, find a, I make and shape a God that looks most presentable to those around me. 
Rather than Paul says being a worker who has no name to ashamed, this sort of syncretism, idolatry, heresy, leads to us being spiritual consumers with no need to endure. The whole call to endurance goes out the window the moment that you have a God that agrees with everything that you say and everything that you come into contact with. It becomes an easy faith rather than an enduring one. And rather than what Paul says, rightly handling the word of truth, this sort of syncretism comes from a haphazard mishandling of Scripture, if any handling of the word at all. And then finally in verse 14, to jump back a second, rather than reminding them of these things, Paul's way of saying, continue in what has been delivered to you. Continue telling these people of the true gospel, who Jesus is and what he's come to do. We don't remind them of these things, but we choose for each individual selves what we want and what we think about Jesus. This is the obstacle to an enduring faith, is rather than committing to the way of Jesus, we lay these things aside and we begin <clears throat> to drop everything that causes any conflict, any discomfort, and we begin to shape a way following Jesus that fits us best. And Paul says it's a cancer to the church. It's a cancer to the individual. It's destructive. It doesn't, it just, and not only it leads to ungodliness and, and sin, whatever language you want to use for that, as you kind of go do whatever you want and you think Jesus approves, it literally tears apart the church because we're no longer united in Jesus, except for in name. But then when you begin to talk through who is this Jesus we're all following, you get a discordant amount of answers. And so it's impossible to have any form of communal life when we, nobody actually agrees on who Jesus is and what he's come to do and what it means to be his people. So as we move into the rest of the passage then, how is Timothy to deal with syncretism within the church community and, and how within us? We'll jump down to verse 23, where Paul says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they only lead to quarrels. In verse 16, Paul said, avoid this babble. In verse 14, he said, charge the community not to even enter these conflicts. Now, here's the thing. Though there are debates and conversations, and I have them all the time as a pastor, that are rooted in people as we're trying to follow Jesus together, and we've got difficulty or challenges or doubts, and we're working through that together, Paul is not saying don't have those conversations. What Paul's getting at is a sort of conversation that I've found myself over the years becoming very aware of the difference between these two. Because there's a particular kind of controversy, debate, talk that happens within the church that is not rooted in searching out who Jesus is and what he's called us to be, but rather um, a, a defending, of a doubling down. It's a, it's a quarreling over words. It, it's just a debate to see who can beat the other one. And what, what, what becomes the kind of telltale sign in all of these conversations is one, when there's little to no Bible, there's little to no talking about what the scripture actually says, when you notice a synchristic language and talking, where you just find over the, the, you know, within a few minutes, you're just like, man, this Jesus sounds just like you. When you find that it's overly antagonistic, when it's rooted at divisive within the community, and ultimately, here's the big giveaway, when it's defensive of sin. That's the telltale sign for me, is like when we're having through a conversation, is one, rooted in searching and following Jesus, and one where it's like, oh, you're just trying to get the Bible to agree with what you want to do. Those are the conversations Paul says, those, they are a waste of your time. They do not amount to anything. Because those people are not here to study scripture with you. And in as humble as a posture as you can take, no matter how humble, how gentle, how kind you are in those conversations, those people, they just want to win. And they will fight until they do. And so Paul says, avoid them, have nothing to do with it. 
In Titus, another one of Paul's prison letters he wrote towards the end of his life, Titus 3, 9 through 10, which would be behind me if you saw, Paul, Paul says almost the exact same words. He adds a little bit of flavor to it that's very helpful because he says, similarly, avoid these foolish controversies. But then he says specifically, those people who are divisive within the community, they're not here to study. They're not here to follow the way of Jesus. They're here to debate and argue. He says, warn them once, then twice, and then have nothing to do with them. So this isn't like on the first, you know, conversation, you know, we're just dropping the hammer. But Paul goes, man, if somebody has set a trajectory and a pattern where it's evident that they don't want to follow Jesus, they want Jesus to follow them. He goes, you have multiple conversations, teasing that out, and then you go, man, I don't know what you're doing here. Or gal, I don't know what you're doing. I don't, I don't know what you're doing within this community that you think where we're, like as Kyle said a moment ago, we're seeking to follow Jesus and teaching others to do the same. And you're you're wasting your Sunday. You're wasting your, you know, your Tuesday night, at, you know, your Thursday night, Thursday morning discipleship group. You could be doing clearly anything other than gathering with a bunch of people who want to follow Jesus and lay our lives down for the sake of that because it's evident that you don't want that. And so there comes a point where that, that conversation needs to be made. Paul said, don't get dragged in this con- they don't. They're not helping anyone. In verse 24, he continues, and he says that you're not to get dragged in that controversy because those quarrels that that, that breeds He says in verse 24, the Lord's servant, that is the one who serves God, must not be quarrelsome. You get into those debates, you become the very thing you're not supposed to be. But rather, not quarrelsome, but what? Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, kind to everyone. Paul says this this is the posture of the servant of Jesus. This is the one who follows God. As we don't get dragged into these controversies, this uh, ignorant talk is what he calls it, but we dedicate ourselves to displaying and declaring the gospel in our way and in our words. He says, as this group comes and they're, they're displaying a faulty theology that leads to foolish and faulty lives, you commit to scripture, you commit to the word, you commit to the gospel and allowing it to be representative throughout your character and life. It's, it's so profound to me that, that some of us would err on one side or the other and Paul makes this through line here. Some of us would say, in dealing with those that disagree with us, we just go over to like patience, gentleness, and the kindness language, right, that Paul uses. Others of us, we leave that behind and we go over here and we do like the correction, right? And we do the like able to teach, reminding them these things. And, we, and Paul says that there's actually a way of uniting and carrying these two things together that actually most displays who Jesus is. Kind, gentle, patient, and yet teaching, correcting, as he says in verse 25, this is what the community of Jesus is meant to be like, holding in the beauty of this conviction and compassion. We take these as mutually exclusive, and Paul doesn't seem to think so. And if I can just say for a moment, if this is true with a heresy about the resurrection, like, heaven forbid what Paul would say about, like, you know, your Twitter feed and, like, the blog wars or whatever. Like, this was so challenging me this week. Paul's like, be kind, be gracious, be patient with heretics within the church that are bringing the cancerous, you know, gangrene-like disease into the church. And I'm like, I'm like yelling at my kids. <laughs> and they're, they're not heretics. I mean, they might be. Like, they're not heretics. And so I, th- this is my thing. That's so profound to me. In this moment of vitriol and anger with those that sit up on the opposite side over something as silly as, like, politics, over something as silly as whatever viewpoint that you have, and we, we respond with vitriol and anger, we lean on the correcting side of things 
But some of us are so terrified that we just like sit over here with the kindness and like, I'm just going to be gentle. And that means I never talk about it. And Paul says, actually, there's a way of uniting those things that is true, even with heretics, even with the syncretism that's bringing this disease in the church, even with your enemies. Gentleness and patience is the way of the people of Jesus. The motivation that Paul then says is to quote him and to paraphrase Martin Luther King Jr., is the way that we then love with kindness and gentleness our enemies is that we aim not for their defeat but for reconciliation. What does Paul say? That God may grant them repentance, that they may turn and return back to the true. Now, what does he say? Return to the truth. We're leading to a knowledge of the truth, to grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. That is what we're aiming for in correction with kindness. We're not trying to defeat our enemies. We're not trying to, I, I always find, for some reason, my YouTube gives me the weirdest range of, like, recommendations. I think my, like, you know, what's it called? My thing is broken. It, like, gives you all the stuff that you want. Yes. And so I get these weird, like, these apologist, like, Christian guys who go and just, like, just, like, rip down other people's viewpoints that are different than their, like, you know, very specific Christianity. And it's just like you can just feel them, like, looking at the camera as they're saying things, and they're just like, yeah, like, they're loving it. And, uh, and I, I just think Paul would have nothing to do with that kind of posture. The goal is not defeating our enemies, but repentance and reconciliation to the truth of who Jesus actually is. And I just love that what Paul says here is the goal being repentance in the midst of syncretism. This was just, I've just been, I was thinking about this in our pre-service prayer time today, like, and I was like, man, I should have spent 20 minutes on this. Do you know how you have a synchristic gospel? Do you know how you're walking in heresy? Do you know, what, how do I differentiate? I, I think there's something to be said here is how present is repentance in your life? How present are you, like, how regular are you going, oh, I, I'm going this way, and yet my commitment to Jesus means I've got to leave this stuff behind. And the regular rate of that happening with your life is probably a pretty good indicator between the difference of a synchristic gospel, the Jesus who just agrees with me, versus one where I'm having to find myself being conformed to his image rather than the other way around. Repentance is the great indicator of whether or not we're actually enduring in the faith. And so Paul says the goal here is not defeating your enemies, but reconciliation. And then he notes that there's even a spiritual dynamic within this false teaching. He says the enemy, the devil, is at work in this moment. This is not just them falling into faulty opinion. This is not just having differing viewpoints on the intricacies of theology. Paul is saying the enemy is at work bringing division and device, not only to their own hearts and ungodliness, but into the community. And so this is why your quarrels and your debates are not going to solve anything. You can't argue anybody into the kingdom of God. You can't browbeat anybody into repentance. It is a gift of God. And so therefore, Timothy, you be faithful in preaching. You carry yourself in a posture that displays the, the way of Jesus. And you prayerfully engage with them as you do. Not believing that you're going to, because there's something else, there's something going on in the depths of who they are that only God can bring about. And so even if things get to, like we read in Titus, this have nothing to do with them, that, that that is still guided at the health of not just the church, but that individual. Hoping for, for that moment to go, I don't know what you're doing here. We're following Jesus, but it's clear that you're not. To be a sort of cold plunge that wakes them up to the reality of what they've gotten used to. And so none of what the church is ever doing is, is purely punitive. None of what the church ever does in the teaching is, 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 is beating down for the sake of beating down. It's the goal is the long obedience in the same direction. The goal is having an enduring faith. 
I remember when I was in high school, I deconstructed before deconstruction was cool. <laughs> it was called the Emergent Church back then. Like that was, we call it deconstruction now. It was, the, it was called the Emergent Church back when I was in high school. And so there was a handful of these authors, and it was, it was, it's, I'm like so bored with most of the deconstruction stuff now because it's like, oh yeah, I read that in high school. Like that, that was five books that like I had all of them highlighted, underlined, like in high, there's nothing new under the sun. And so as I'm reading all this stuff, and I'm getting all excited, my parents are like, we don't know what the heck to do with this kid. But I had these two kind of friends, older friends, John Rayleigh and Kyle Sheely. And what was so profound was in my engagement with them is these, here were these two guys that in my relationship with them, they weren't worried or scared about my questions, but they also wouldn't engage in like my fiery debates of like the, the American church is destroyed and like every, we just, everyone should just individually follow Jesus and like figure it out as we go. Like I just was in all of that kind of stuff. Like Jesus needs to save the church was like one of my favorites. Jesus needs to save Christians was like one of the big things for me. And just to see all of this, and so they didn't, they didn't engage with the fiery debates, but what they did is, in my relationship with them, they displayed and declared the beauty of an orthodox faith that was so attractive that I, I don't know when Ryan came out of like his little deconstruction emergent phase. Maybe I'm still in it, but I don't know. There wasn't a moment that clicked where I was just go, I am no longer syncretist. Like, I am choosing to try to, I want to follow Jesus for who he is. I don't know when that clicked. It was a slow process of being in relationship with individuals who had those conversations with me, and they were they they became aware of going, man, you don't you don't actually want to talk right now. You just or you just want to talk. <laughs> you just you just want to yell. You don't want to actually have a conversation. But then over time, those conversations became conversations. This is what I think Paul is getting at: is that kind of displayed work of how we carry ourselves within the church. This ability to teach. And for Paul, what he's going to go into before we come to kind of a closing thing here is what Paul's going to go into in the back half of the letter, which is actually going to set up our fall series, is the key guiding framework that, that helps guide us away from syncretism and into true faith is a commitment to the scriptures. Because that that's, notice how Paul just says that, that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but able to teach. As you flip back over to the beginning, he talks about reminding them of these things. And then being a worker who has no need to be ashamed, what does he say? Rightly handling the word of truth. There is a key element of your and my saturation in the scriptures that becomes the guardrails for syncretism and idolatry and heresy. Which becomes then so terrifying when, uh, the poll was I think a year ago, that millennials... We get about 3,000 hours of digital content per year. It's higher the younger that you are. 3,000 hours of digital content a year, so it's streaming, podcast, just scrolling, everything that we do. For very strong Christians, that's 250 hours out of the 3,000. That is a two-to-one ratio of even, let's say all 3,000 of your hours are really cool, like news documentaries making you really smart stuff. And it's not just like the garbage that it is for most of us. I see you, TikTok. And... And when you have this two-to-one ratio, you have a continuing of biblical literacy, which is why I would argue that the syncretism stuff is, so, and the part of that being the deconstruction stuff, is so prevalent within our, our, this culture and this generation. 
is you have a generation that is raised up with some kind of ancillary connection to Jesus, some, some focus and feeling of depth within him. But when you actually start to ask questions about who is Jesus to you and what does that look like, what is truth, what is obedience, what is sin, what is repentance, like the answers that you get are as varied as the people that you have. And it's not that we're meant to be robots all giving off the same answers, but when there's no correlation, when there's a biblical illiteracy, when this is the main thing that guides our endurance is what Paul's setting up, And so I, I, I regularly wrestle with this because, I, you know, what this doesn't mean is, like, everybody needs to go to seminary like Ryan and, like, read Greek and Hebrew. It's by no means what I'm saying. Like, I get that Ryan's kind of on the nerdy end of this whole thing. But you as a Christian should be able to speak to why you believe what you believe. You as a Christian should be able to hear and see what you're saying right now. I, I de- like, that, is not, that is not worth it. You should be able to see that within yourself. Not where you've got the whole Bible memorized, but you at least get the arc and the bow and the flow of it, that you know why the scripture works. I was in a premarital counseling uh, session with a couple from Collective, and the first session of it, we go through what is marriage. We kind of begin to detail, you know, unpack what a biblical sexual ethic is and really a biblical portrayal of what marriage is. And so as we go through Jesus' teachings in the Gospels, there's this thing that people say Jesus never talked about anything like, you know, gay marriage or, you know, uh, gender stuff. And that's just silly because Jesus does. And so we spend time looking at what Jesus spends and how Jesus talks about marriage. And so I was asking about what challenges are there. And, and one of the individuals in the couple, when we got to the issue of the Christian portrayal of what marriage is meant to be, began to kind of go like, I just, I, you know, I've always just kind of like received that as what Christians believe. But like, I was like, so where, why? And like, I was asking, like, really poking, like, help me understand. This is a pretty substantial issue within for followers of Jesus today. And said someone just kind of went, well, I'm not, I'm not gay. I don't, I'm not, you know, attracted to others, so it's not really an issue for me. And just was kind of like, it's just, you know, for the pastor to have figured out. And I'm just, I'm like, buddy, you know, <laughs> this is, this is the problem within the culture. And this is regardless of like sexual ethics stuff. Like this is, this is integral to your walk with Jesus is can you handle the word and know why you believe what you believe? This is part of what we do with our discipleship groups. Why, hopefully for most of you, you've read this passage before you got here today is you're not just listening to Ryan, but you're spending time saturating yourself in the scriptures. And then in your discipleship groups, you're not getting together to go watch a movie or you're not getting together to play beer pong or whatever it is that you guys do. You're sitting down and you're going, man, I want to endure. I want this long obedience. I want a faithful, vivid, life-giving following of Jesus. And scripture is the place where I find that. And so my discipleship group is us engaging in this. This is more of a pastoral moment than necessarily, you know, coming from the text. I, I don't know what it means for us to follow Jesus if we think that we can leave this on the shelf except for Sunday morning. So the calling for Paul is being able to teach, to being able to rightly handle the word of truth. And that is not something just for pastors, but for the church itself, for each of us. So if this is Paul's framework for dealing with syncretism and heresy, what what do we do with the fact that it's even present in the church to begin with as we begin to close? What do we do with the fact that this is even present in the church? If the church is what the church is, why is there all this false teaching? What's going on here? Verse 19, right after Paul details... Hymenaeus and Philetus upsetting the faith of some. What does he say in verse 19? God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his. 
Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. This idea of God's firm foundation is his way talking about the church. And to use this image, it's almost this firm foundation. It's almost like you think of a church building. And engraved in the cornerstone foundation is this script that says, the Lord knows who are his. What Paul is saying here is this church community, as long, any church, as long as we're following Jesus in the midst of this world, there are going to be people who are a part of the community who do not belong to the Lord. There are going to be people that are here to play games. There are going to be people here that are okay with just checking off boxes where they've reached like a baseline level of morality where there's not enough sin to destroy their life, but it is doing it over the slow long haul, and they're kind of okay with that. Paul goes, there's going to be those people that are within the community, but that does not undermine God's faithfulness to his church. God knows who are his. So then the invitation with that in mind is for us to hear the second you know, imprint on the church building. Let those who call on the name, from the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Just because you're here on Sundays, just because you're in a discipleship, just because you're whatever, do not assume that you are in. The Lord knows who are his. Let everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Leave that stuff behind. I don't know if there's a stronger case for the integral link between faith and works than right here in chapter 19. Those who call upon the name of the Lord, those who have faith in God, let them depart from iniquity and take on good works is what he says in a moment. These are not separated. There is no getting baptized, coming to church. And I'm like, okay, cool. I'm on like the heaven train or whatever. Let those who call upon the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And then he begins to tease out in this example of two different vessels in a home, of the honorable and the dishonorable. He's talking about things used for drinking and things used for like carrying out the trash. But for me, the first thing that came to mind is the tale of two toothbrushes. In my house, I have two toothbrushes. There's one in my bathroom that has a very specific purpose. It is for my mouth and my teeth. I have another toothbrush that's in the hall closet, and that is for everything. I use it, it's like, you know, toilet, like spots you can't reach, sink and grout in the shower, like you step in something because Emma missed one on the way, you know, and you use the toothbrush. Those are two very different toothbrushes. I am very, very intentional about which ones I'm using, right? They don't look the same, but... What I think Paul's getting at here is there are two sorts of things. And that, that particular, the toothbrush that has its one unique purpose, that is what holy is all about. That's what dedicated is all about. That's what, that's what separate is all about. I'm not two-timing and using my one toothbrush for a bunch of things. I have two unique ones. And so Paul is going similarly in the church. Let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. What kind of toothbrush are you? What kind of vessel are you? Are you a vessel that is set apart for holiness and distinction and dedication to God? Or are you content to play this game of how much Jesus do I really need to get by? What's like the baseline of like, you know, able to kind of orchestrate my life where I've got a bare minimum of Jesus. They're just the right amount, just a twist of Jesus, just a hint of Jesus there at the end. Just enough of Jesus to get by. But then, you know, my life and everything else looks more or less the same as everyone else around me. You see, the opposite of syncretism is holiness. The opposite of choosing for myself what I want is being dedicated for the kingdom's presentation in my life. And so what Paul's calling you and I to is no longer play a game of trying to find the balancing game between how much Jesus versus how much whatever I want to stuff into the Build-A-Bear Jesus that I can get. There's, there, there's no balancing here. It's one or the other. And so what to look for then, for those of us who want to cleanse ourselves as 
holy, set-apart, dedicated instruments of service for the Lord, what does he say? Cleanse, verse 22, flee youthful passions. Flee youthful passions. Dr. Samuel Ngewa, he's a New Testament professor in Nairobi, Kenya. He has the best commentary on 2 Timothy, I think. It's my favorite right now. He details what Paul means by youthful passions, and he lists a list that uh, I just ended up highlighting the whole page. (laughs) Youthful passions, he depicts as impatience, being opinionated, argumentative, lazy, a love of novelty and what's new, a love and a desire for social acceptance, a selfishness or individualism. These are the youthful passions that Paul says, get these out of your community. And if there is a particular type of syncretism in our church, I'm not very worried about Greek platonic thought sneaking in here. But I think Paul has something to say with youthful passions there is. The more time that I spend looking at my own life and the way that Los Angeles shapes me and seeing the way that it's shaping our community, if there is one thing that we need to, in Paul's words, flee, it is our belief that we can have kind of this immature Jesus who's along for the ride and saves us at the end. Where we believe that Jesus baptizes our impatience and busyness, where we think that our opinionated is somehow agreed upon by Jesus in everything that we say, so we're argumentative about all we go through, a laziness that we just sit by, we do not steward the life that we have, a love of novelty rather than a deep commitment to the things of Jesus, the democracy of the dead, as scholars refer to, what the inheritance from the saints before us, a social acceptance where we will just push Jesus over and hide him behind any furniture the moment he says something that wouldn't fit onto a Sunday afternoon on NPR, our selfishness, is there is one syncretism we must be aware of. I think it's this immaturity where Jesus looks at that and just goes, no, nah, man, you be you. Go for the authentic thing. You be, if you, you give, as opposed to what Paul says, pursuing, I would argue, are the exact opposite of youthful passions. Things like righteousness, faithfulness, love, not depicted as, as warm feelings, but self-giving love, love in the way of agape, in the way of the cross, peacemaking, along with all those who call upon the name of the Lord, Jesus, Paul saying community. Do you want righteousness? Do you want faithfulness? Do you want self-giving love, peace, and deep community to reside within this community and within your own life? Then you must flee youthful passions. Do you want to be useful to the master of the house? Do you want to be set apart for the work that Ephesians 2 says that God created before time for you to walk in these good works? The Apostle Paul would say, are you committed to a life of conforming yourself to the image of the Son? Or have you, like Hymenaeus and Philetus, have you conformed him to your image? And, And there isn't like a happy ending here. I think intentionally Paul invites us to spend some time, as we're gonna do in our response time today, pondering what it is, who is the Jesus that I'm actually confessing to follow each day? Is he the sort of Jesus that calls me to depart from iniquity? Is he the kind of Jesus who doesn't look like me but calls me to actually be truly me rather than this false image I project? This is what Paul invites us into, and that's where we're going to be with our response time today. Let's pray.